This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Graham Davison. Graham is Professor Emeritus at Monash University. He is Australia's best-known urban historian and a leading social historian, and he joined me in the studio to talk about a book he's edited called Hugh Stretton, Selected Writings. Hugh Stretton was a leading public intellectual in Australia and a social democrat. Yes, you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. I have with me in the studio the wonderful Graham Davison. He is a professor, the Sir John Monash Distinguished Emeritus Professor at Monash University, and he is Australia's best-known urban historian. He's also a leading social historian, so he has probably one of the best jobs in the world, and he has very, very thoughtfully put together a book called Hugh Stretton Selected Writings, and this book uh, features the writing of Australian public intellectual Hugh Stretton, who passed away in 2015 but had a very long and uh, prolific life. He's written and some you know, very fascinating pieces uh, which Graham has obviously done a lot of reading to whittle down to <laughs> the selection we have in front of us. Uh, so I welcome Graham now. Thank you very much for coming in. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. Um, and so this book uh, has a, a beautiful cover and it's an artwork um, mm. which, I mean, it certainly is a very reflective um you can look at that and think that Hugh is kind of thinking deeply about some kind of subject. Okay. You knew Hugh yes, as well. I, I met him actually first in, in February 1970 when he was one of my PhD examiners, which is not exactly the most uh, promising beginning for a, for a friendship. <laughs> That's a scary but in fact, prospect. he was so generous. I mean, he actually sat me down and said, you've, you've passed and let's have a chat. And afterwards we went and had a beer <laughs> and he re- volunteered to write to Melbourne University Press to get my thesis published so he and then we had uh, a warm relationship over a long time so Mm. he he it was a wonderful uh thoughtful generous modest but above all extraordinarily incisive thinker he he i think even long before he published people were rather in awe of Hugh. um he he had a kind of clarity and simplicity away in the way he spoke um and a generosity in the way he thought about things that was really impressed people Yes, and he impressed people, uh, well, very early on, as you say. As a university student, he was very, very much uh, loved and admired yeah. by his lecturers and singled out for... Well, he had, he had an extraordinary early career, you know. He, mm. he, he went to university in 1939 and war broke out and he had to break, his studies had to be terminated. He went into the Navy. He had colour blindness, so he couldn't be an officer where he would normally have expected. So he, he served out the war as a, as a naval rating which gave him, as he said, um, some experience of living with working-class people. He'd come from a privileged background. His father was a judge. Yeah. He'd been to Scotch College. But he, he valued that experience during the war. Um, and then when he came, uh, he noticed that towards the end of the war, there was a little faded notice on the ship's notice board saying um, that they were encouraging applications for the Rhodes Scholarship. So even though he'd only had one year of university study, he applied... He turned up and he was interviewed. All the other candidates were officers. They were wearing their 
military uniform, their decorations, he turned up in civvies. Uh, but his referees were so extraordinarily supportive. I and mean, people mm. said he, this man is a genius. Um, and so he was selected. He went off to Oxford. Um, uh, and the, same, the story repeated itself at Oxford. He, even before he'd taken his final exams, he'd been elected a fellow of his college, uh, Balliol College, uh, and he spent the next five years as a, as a tutor in, in Oxford. Um, quite extraordinarily meteoric rise. Mm. All, of course, without any publications, no, no PhD. Uh, and then at the age of 29... He was um, summoned to come back as Professor of History at Adelaide, again with no publications, no PhD. These days you would think it was scandalous and yes. corrupt. But in those days he had such an, an aura mm. um, and people were so impressed with him intellectually that he was appointed to that position. And he then set about establishing what many people thought at the time was the most vital and democratic history department uh, in the country. So it, it was an amazing early career. Yes. Um, and those who knew him and those who, who've known him since, I think, would all still testify to the extraordinary personal um, uh, rela- you know, attitudes and, and persuasiveness that he seemed to exhibit. Mm. Yes. And was it the case that he was the youngest professor Yes, Australia? he was the youngest professor in Australia when mm. he was elected. There had been earlier professors. Adelaide had a habit, uh, or you might say, of, of selecting infant prodigies. So they appointed uh, Lawrence Bragg, the famous, eventually became a Nobel Prize mm. winning physicist at the age of 23. And Keith Hancock, another yes. famous historian, had been professor at Adelaide, I think at the age of about 26. So there were precedents. But even so, it was a remarkable... Um, uh, attainment, wasn't it, to that have is. been appointed at that age? I, yeah. I, d- I wonder whether it could ever be done in this day and age, really. I doubt it. No. I doubt it. But I think people had confidence in those days that th- they could detect uh, a person who had outstanding intellectual mm. attributes and it wasn't the mere accumulation of publications that made them made them so. So, so And then, of course, um, he, he went on a uh, brilliant teacher, ran a wonderful department, he survived a painful marriage breakup. He self-parented his children for a while, happily remarried. Um, but he'd got to the age of about 40, um, everyone still regarding him with, with awe, but he's still not published yeah. anything. <laughs> so, um, you know, early, extraordinary early promise mm. combined with this long, long run-up to the wicket, you might say, yes. before he actually manages to deliver the publications that would eventually make him famous. Yes, well, you, one would imagine there's a little bit of pressure given just how, you know, high that people held him in, how, how much high esteem people had. I think as had. the years went by, the weight of expectations probably grew. Mm. Um, and he, he confessed on one occasion, eventually he got leave and went to the ANU in 1966 and he, re- he recalls how he went for a walk up Black Mountain um, uh, climbed Black Mountain got to the top and when he got there he sort of had a little dialogue with himself in which he said something like now Hugh you're either you can do it or you can't, can't yeah. <laughs> um, and this was, and he went back and he was living in a tiny little house mm. in Hughes and he sat down and the book that had been maturing in his mind for many years began to take shape um, and he wrote it really quite rapidly, a book called The Political Sciences. Um, he, he, to take a step back, he'd, he'd 
um, always been interested and his father was deeply interested in how history could contribute to an understanding of contemporary issues. This had been the issue that had been on his mind all the way through and he, no, soon after he was elected a fellow of Balliol, he was sent mm. off to America. He went to Princeton for a year and just to audit courses and to take things in and he formed a very... Um, he came to the conclusion that a lot of what passed off as social science in America, and he was thinking of sociology particularly, he decided was a completely fraudulent enterprise. Mm. Um, And in particular, what he thought was fraudulent about it was the idea that you could somehow uh, do social sciences in a value-free way, that you could separate values from from the social science enterprise. And there was something in his gut that made him know that that was wrong. Yes, uh, and he and he eventually this book called the Political Sciences is a sustained critique of the idea of value-free social science, the idea that social science could be modelled upon physics and mathematics, and and could emphasise you know quantification and all of that. So he. He eventually writes this book. Um, it, it had an extraordinary reception. Once again, that word genius, which is often used of him when he was an undergraduate, come, the Times Literary Supplement said this is a work of near, near genius. So, um, and I can still remember, I was a student at the ANU at the time, the whole of the um, Research School of Social Sciences abandoned its usual program of seminars for two weeks simply to discuss this book which they thought was so so not exactly revolutionary but Mm. so deeply formative um so that was that and i'd already read that book when i met him in um 1970 very much in awe of him um uh, and yet uh he was so in in some ways so modest and friendly and, and generous in his own demeanour. Yeah. And, well, let's talk a bit about uh, his approach to political um, science and that Mm. the area of study that he was really writing about in um, a political science of society. He, as you say, valued history and the, I guess, historical approach, which is a very different approach to that in political, the political sciences. Um, Those who may not be aware, maybe we can just draw the distinctions or share what those kind of key differences are. Mm. Well, I I mean, I think one of his beliefs was that history was one of the few kinds of study which could assimilate all kinds of materials and could see problems hold. It didn't, yeah. con- it didn't uh, routinely distinguish between the cultural and the economic and so on. It, it, it attempted to bring them all together and it was open about applying values to them. So I think he thought in that way that history had a, a deep kind of contribution to make. It's something, by the way, he'd learned from his father. His father was a remarkable judge who'd carried out the big inquiry into the 1939 bushfires in Victoria um, and where he had tried to look at all of the human and natural and other factors that brought about those terrible bushfires. Um, so, and, he, and it's a beautiful report. It's, mm. it, it, it reads like a novel in places. Um, so from the older Stretton, Hugh had learnt the importance of history in understanding contemporary Events and contemporary issues. And at the end of his life, if I can kind of jump forward a little bit, I mean, his last great enterprise uh, was a textbook on economics. He, 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 the uh, most popular textbook, many of your 
listeners, I suspect, will have encountered Paul Samuelson's book on economics, um, a textbook on economics. And uh, while he respected Samuelson in some ways, Stretton thought it was really deeply wrong. And in mm. particular, he wanted to reinsert a, a historical understanding into economics. And so the book is very largely about... How, not only about how econo- where economic theory comes from, but it doesn't just drop from heaven. It's itself a product of the reflection of, uh, of individuals thinking about the economic circumstances of their own time. But it's also... Um, th- th- it needs to be applied historically so that we understand the in- how the institutions that create economic life came into being as well. So, he, mm. so he's very strong about that idea. Yes, well, there are some really interesting thoughts that he raises and it. it reminds me of the fact that economics was it used to be part of the humanities. That's right. Which many would forget, given That's it right. is now in a commerce degree, mostly. Well, I, I, it, part of his um, experience was that when he went to Oxford, uh, he was and taught there for five years. He was teaching students in a famous degree called Politics, Philosophy and yep. Economics, PPE. which is the degree, the degree yeah. I took myself. Um, and I was actually taught by his one of his closest friends, another economist called Paul Streeton. And there we, of course, the, the, the po- whole point of that was that you studied uh, history, uh, which was really another way of... They talked about politics, but it was mm. political history, if you like, um, philosophy and economics together. And I think that was something that he deeply valued and believed ought to, ought to be much more common. Whereas now, of course, I'm afraid in most universities, we've split them apart. I mean, economics belongs with accounting and marketing and has very little to do with the rest of the humanities. Yes, and it really highlights the point that he makes, which is that you cannot make such a huge distinction between economics and history. They are intertwined and inform each other. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and one of the quotes that you have in this book, uh, which I thought was really important, was, uh, quote, all those institutions, and he's talking about, you know, economic institutions, political institutions, run on mixtures of motive, desires for money, power, security, respect, love and other people's welfare, individual gain, mutual service, self-sacrifice, national, racial, religious, corporate, family and other loyalties. No economic system could possibly run on universities selfishness nor on universal duty universal love or any other single motive exactly yes it and seems I, to and encapsulate that doesn't one it of the, one of, i think if i was asked to pick a particular essay in this book mm. that i think is um really particularly appropriate now it's a book it's an essay called the cult of selfishness mm, and yes. really what it's at the core of that essay is that the we have reduced economic uh, our understanding of economics to the idea that uh, the only motive that we have in life is the acquisition, individual acquisition of money and, and property. Um, and whereas, in fact, most of us live lives where there's a whole range of other motives that, that govern our behaviour. And, and a good economics is one that takes that into account, including people's p- potential for cooperation as well as competition. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's putting the humanity back into economics. Yes. And, you know, it, it isn't really a science, although many econo- economists would like to think or show that they are somehow objective and, and really quite removed from That's the right. outcome of their deliberations or valuations. And this is often a way, I mean, this is a way of, seg- of, of isolating ourselves and of 
insulating ourselves in some ways from the value judgments that are always implied in economic yes and you did say that the cult of selfishness is probably one of his most uh, not necessarily angry but just he's very passionate in his writing it is in some ways quite an angry uh, mm. I mean, he was not in personal demeanour an angry man. Yeah. But I think there was a kind of suppressed anger underlying yeah. some of his later writing. He really, he really did feel that uh, from the eighties onwards, things began to go off the rails from his perspective. He'd, he'd been in the seventies. He became very influential, including within the Labor Party, and in the approach up to the election of the Hawke government. He'd been quite closely involved with key people, including Ralph Willis, Barry Jones, Hawke himself, uh, in formulating policy. And when the, the government came to power, um, he found that in a very quick time, um, we abandoned um, many of the things that he thought were important in economic life and, and under Keating. Uh, a person who, by the way, he simultaneously admired and and disliked yeah um uh, but under keating he felt that you know economic policy had been given over to forces that he really didn't feel were were um in the best interests of the country yes well that basically in the introduction to political essays which is what i was scanning through yesterday um he highlights the hawk labor government and their economic policies and really says that they are moving away from their core Labor policies to Liberal policies that both work and don't work and are moving or basically signalling the beginning of this movement to neoliberalism. That's right. He was was sounding the warnings against that from early on. He, he, you remember, if you go back a step, you know, he'd mm. arrived in England in 1946, time of the Attlee government, and he'd seen all of the steps that led to the creation of the modern welfare state, you, you know, the national health system, uh, unemployment insurance, all of those things. Um, so he was deeply um, committed to the idea that we could redress social and economic inequality by appropriate state action. He had a belief in government. Mm. He, he, but fundamentally, he knew that politicians were not reliable people, that even public servants could be uh, corrupt. But he fundamentally believed in the role of government. And, he, and what troubled him by the 1980s was that there was a, the, the, the push towards so-called small government was, um, you know, in danger of... Uh, not, on, not only leading to increased social inequality, something that, of course, has obviously come to pass, but it was also not even conducive to economic prosperity. Mm. Um, he thought that the that governments... And it's very interesting, you know, I, I think now economists and political scientists are coming back to a, rec- a keen recognition of how important government is. Most of the things that we value, including the internet, are things that were produced by, uh, originally by government initiative and we still rely upon them. Yes, exactly. Uh, well, in, in an interview that he did uh, with is it Peter Gabilisco, yes. he uh, 
was asked about um, what, how he would classify himself, and you also uh, mentioned this in the book, is uh, that he would identify as a pragmatic social democrat. Yeah. What does that mean? What does that qualification mean of pragmatic? And were there social democrats who weren't particularly pragmatic? I think it may. I mean, he used uh, social democrats has a particular resonance. I mean, there's historically we associated also with social democracy in Germany in the early 20th century. Uh, so he was wanting to probably separate himself from that. He, By the way, he all sorts of labels were applied to Stretton. Yes. Including, uh, there's, a, there's a, a deep conservatism in some of Stretton's thinking. I mean, he, he really was very emph- emphatic about the importance of the household, the family. He, he was a strong defender in his time of individual home ownership, for example, against much of the left. He insisted on that. So so the pragmatism came in that I think he was always willing to revise his thinking in new circumstances. And by the 1990s, he rec- began to recognise that for good or ill, that the social democratic project as we'd had it had run out of puff or it had lost its way. And so a lot of his thinking was applied to how we could might, might be able to revive the best of the social democratic project. And he saw potential in the women's movement, for example. He saw potential in all sorts of aspects of of the horizon that was emerging at that time for rehabilitating that agenda. One of the things that he realised, I think he was slow to, to, for it to come to terms with it in some ways, mm. was that the, the, uh, the assumptions of Keynesian economics, which had underwritten much of the welfare state um, the, the, the stagflation that overtook the western democracies in the 1980s was a profound crisis and it was something that uh, that you couldn't simply uh, ignore and so a lot of his attention was trying to rethink the social democratic position which for him ultimately was a matter of values of fairness um, values that emphasise so, a degree of social cohesion and so on. Yeah. He wanted to rehabilitate that agenda and make it real for a different time. Yes, and like his, the, there was an importance of class as well in this which you draw out, is the fact yeah. that given he was born into an upper-middle-class background, uh, you also say that he would made effort after effort to, I guess, cross-class divides yeah. and support uh, people who were of the working class, be around them, as you say, in the Navy, um, having that experience to know all all of Australia. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that stuck out to me was the fact that you draw or highlight that he said that really class division isn't good for anyone. That's right. And he was very strong on the idea that, you know, a fairer society would be a happier society for the rich as well as the poor. Uh, now, I'm not sure that every rich person would agree. thinks that, <laughs> would, think, would agree with that, but it was something he certainly lived out himself. He, I mean, if you'd met him, uh, you, you might well have decided that he, he seemed very Oxbridge. Mm. You know, he, he, uh, there, was nothing, there was nothing demotic in his own attitude and behaviour, but in the way he lived his life and the priorities he had himself, he, he, he lived modestly, he didn't spend a lot of money, he drove an old car... He did admittedly send his children to private schools. Um, I remember somebody once said, 
told me that he, you know, they taxed him with this and he said something like, why, why should my children suffer for my principles, which seems a strange idea. <laughs> but, but in other respects, I think he, he really did um, uh, live out his life in a way that uh, reflected that belief that um, and he lived he lived in a neighborhood which he was proud to say included all sorts of people mm. um, uh, if you lived there now you would in North Adelaide um, you would probably have to have a lot more money than he had when he first went there but that was that was his experience mm. yeah and he lived in not only Adelaide but as you said Canberra so he had an yeah. experience of some very particular cities they are quite in contrast to Melbourne and Sydney yeah. in their layout as well as just their general appearance and, and function. Yeah. You highlight in there and um, in this book the differences. He, tr- he tries to make distinctions between them, um, particularly between Canberra and Adelaide versus Sydney yeah. and Melbourne. What were some of those observations that he well, was I th- making? I think, I think two things. One is scale and one is planning. Um, I mean, he was a, a fervent believer in the in value of urban planning. And in, in fact, his second book, and probably his most famous book, mm. Ideas for Australian Cities, is really about urban planning. And he wrote another a really excellent textbook, really, on urban planning called Urban Planning in Rich and Poor Countries. Um, so he, he believed in the value of planning and he saw in both Canberra and in Adelaide traditions of of enlightened planning if you go back to the foundations of adelaide under wakefield uh and the the famous adelaide plan and which is continues to be um built upon in later generations he himself became active in this field he was the deputy chair of the south australian housing trust the public housing authority uh very close to the public servants who ran that um that uh, and so he 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 believed strongly in traditions of planning, and he saw when he looked at Sydney and Melbourne, mm. he th- he was m- more impressed by their absence than the, any evidence of good planning. The other was scale. I mean, he he really raised a question which I think is still a timely one for us, which is can can some can our big cities get too big? Um, he, he would argue that you can get most of the virtues that you will find in living in a city with a population of a million or less. Um, you don't have to grow to six million as we seem to be doing now in Melbourne in order to achieve um, uh, the best of what we uh, want in urban life. So he was in favour, he was sympathetic to the idea of the Whitlam government to try and create new cities um, that would decentralise Australia's population. Um, And I think that, personally, I think that is still a question that we should be considering, uh, especially when you consider the enormous costs that we're now facing in place like Melbourne of retrofitting our cities with decent yes. public transport, for example. So there, there, there's much to be said. And, and it's still to be... Um, I'm still to be persuaded that we can't, in an age of the internet, actually decentralise employment more than we do at present. Yeah, it's a really excellent point, a very, very urgent point, really. Um, I'm speaking with Graham Davison, and we're speaking about uh, this wonderful book, Hugh Stratton Selected Writings. Uh, If we talk a little bit more about urban planning, but particularly what you've just referenced there, which is density and Mm. home ownership, he, as you've said, was arguing for... um, 
less density, not more. Mm, that's right. uh, and many people nowadays would suggest that it's a virtue to have density because you're utilising mm. the you know space very well. But I think what resonates with me is, um, and what you've been talking about uh, in other interviews, is the t- the security that home ownership provides, and also the space, the physical yeah. space inside and outside, that provides physical security, but also mental respite or or security. Yes, yes. I, mean, I, I think in some ways our perception of the home ownership thing has been distorted by the fact that what's taken over is the speculative value of housing yeah so people now register their sense of worth in housing regrettably not about the value that has to them in Mm. the way they can live their lives but in what they can trade up to in in terms of acquisition of of more wealth and i think that's had a you know a, a dreadful effect i don't know it'd be interesting if hugh was still here today to ask him his how he feels about homeownership. I think at the time when he first began to write, we had about 70% of home of uh, householders owned or were buying their own home. It's now slipped, hasn't it? And yes. among the, among younger people, it's slipped even further. So if you're a, if you're a social de- democrat and you're interested in fairness, uh, I think he, what he would now be emphasising more was something that he did emphasise at his time, but he would probably now give more attention to, which was the importance of providing suitable rental housing for people who simply can't afford um, to own their own home anymore. Mm. Well, it's a real problem for many, many, many people. Um, and the apartments that are now built are tiny yes, that's right. <laughs> like and many of them don't have natural light or yeah. very limited natural light and that does have a significant impact on well-being especially, and, and especially he would have said for families yes. you know if you're t- trying to rear children in those sorts of conditions and we've now hear reports don't we that people who are um, bringing up children in high-rise apartments, so mm. you know there, there's all sorts of difficulties in that. So, so he he, he was not against dense housing for those yes. who wanted it. He very happily would would uh, support that. But what he didn't want was to to be imposed upon mm. he people who didn't want it. Um, and uh, and I think that's still uh, a key question. He was also very questioning. I mean, a, a lot of the arguments in favour of densification get going uh, on the basis that we can achieve um, uh, economies of space, we can uh, create more viable public transport and so on. He questioned a lot of the inferred causal relationships between those things. And he would point out, for example, that um, at at the moment a large proportion of the space that we have in our cities is taken up not by housing but by roads, by parking, by a whole range of other functions mm. so in order to get a significant uh, increase in uh, density you've got to crush people into unacceptably constrained um, conditions yes well it, it certainly is quite revealing nowadays in victoria when you see melbourne and also the rise of geelong as an example just yes. how it is growing and becoming less affordable yes even there which That's is right. disturbing because um, having come from there i've seen it it change a huge amount and as you say it's been taken up by other things like you know shopping malls and yes. you know and and the I guess the growth on the outer skirts of Geelong that are moving towards Torquay and are on like 
agricultural land and land that would never have been used for housing is also quite concerning. And a lot of it, of course, has been uh, um, quite unregulated Um, and we've got relatively... I mean, if you think back in terms of the history of Melbourne, when most of our suburbs grew, we had already constructed a, a pretty good public transport system. For 50 years, we've neglected the growth of public transport. We're now trying to provide it. If we were to build new suburbs and to put in the needed infrastructure from the beginning, I personally don't see any reason why we shouldn't be building new suburbs Mm. on the periphery, as long as we build them in the right way. Yes. Well, you talk about the fact that he... um he was pro-suburbs. He yeah. didn't think they were this kind of place where the intellectual soul goes to die, which many people would uh. think of and deride suburbs as being these kind of concrete jungles with houses and a backyard or a front yard. What do you think Hugh would think about housing estates in the, in the contemporary way that they've been designed and placed or Put in, in well, kind I, think, of I, I mean, areas. I think you would think some of them are appalling. I mean, what, yeah. w- if we think about what's happened in recent years, we you focus on the rise of a few high-rise apartments in the centre, but what's much more the case is, of course, that we've been bu- building houses that are bigger and bigger. I mean, you know, the, the the new project house not only has to have four bedrooms, but of course it has to have four bathrooms. It has to have uh, not only a a living room, but it has to have a parent's retreat. It has to have a games room or playroom and so on. So we're making bigger and bigger houses, which Mm. are of course more and more energy um, inefficient. Um, So uh, there's been too little focus, I think, on that. Meanwhile, I think uh, we could well be building... Um, new suburbs in a different way that would enable us to provide most of what people actually need um, and and connect them much more efficiently to the rest of the city and I think that's probably what he would have been looking for now not mm. not necessarily um, uh, pushing people into high-rise apartments. Yes. And, well, one of the the features is that the greater the house size, it seems um, the diminishing size of green space or gardens and yes. places where, yeah. for example, children might play. Yeah. I mean, what, what I think he was... When he advocated um, home ownership, I think the backyard, he would have... He actually quoted research on backyards i'm not mm. sure that if you carried out that research now you would get the same result he he was thinking of the age when uh, backyard cricket was yeah. the norm now we have to live in an age where i suspect um nintendo is the is the norm you know um and so the games room is taken over from the from the backyard mm. uh he thought of you know backyards where people did motor car maintenance where they uh, sunbaked they did also now for good or ill that some of that seems to have gone, doesn't it? I yes. Mean, and, and whether it's because people don't have the backyards uh, and therefore can't do it or whether, whether they're actually choosing a different kind of space, I think mm. is an interesting question. Yes, it's hard to know what came first. Is it yes, the restriction yeah. or you know, we're responding to restrictions? Or, yeah, but, I think, but I think at the core of his idea was the mm. idea that we should have some degree of control over the spaces in which we live. So um, it's changed a little, but even now... Renters have difficulty, don't they? For example, you know, some landlords won't let, let you put your pictures up. They no. won't allow you to to modify the space in the way you would want to do. So, 
Um, yeah, so you're sometimes a guest in someone else's home. That's right. So own. our sense of, of well-being is mm. very much tied up with our sense of control over the intimate spaces in which we live. Yes. I think that's such an important point that is just barely touched on now. Yes, that's right. It's, yeah, obviously why this book is important, and I'm really glad you've put together such a great selection i wanted to raise something that you have uh, raised which is the the word selection and the process of selecting um which also goes back to his uh, approach scholarly approach to topics and uh the inherent bias or values that are at play whenever an individual is putting something together it's reflecting a person's values and the need for you to be upfront with That's what right. your values are. That's right. That is also something which seems to be lacking. Is well, that well? I, th- I think. I mean, any, any any anthology is a selection. Mm. I mean, selection was one of uh, his favourite words. Um, he was interested in what it is that we select when we uh, when we are a historian or a social scientist. Uh, what governs our selection of what's relevant? Um, and so I was mindful of that when I came to selecting from his own work he was a prolific writer yeah um there's an 800 page textbook on economics <laughs> uh the political yeah. sciences which i think you've looked at is a yes. is a bumper you know it's a what a four or five hundred page yes. book mm. um i i had the advantage that i'd previously written about him and i'd been and worked on his papers at the national library and i was aware that very often um in occasional talks and lectures or letters to other people, he often wrote about what he was th- expressed what he was thinking in a much more concise and often uh, livelier way than he did in the big books. Mm. So, the, so when I came to selecting uh, for this book, I decided to include a lot of those previously unpublished piece talks and things that he gave of that kind. So there's a lot, what nice one he gave as an ABC guest of honour talk about uh, why he was. Uh, against very free trade and very big government, a very small government. Yeah. You know? um, or there's another very nice one that he gave to Donald Horne's Ideas Summit about the value, the use of history. It's only mm. less than 2,000 words, but in my mind it's an absolutely a real gem about what it is that's distinctive that, the, that, that history can contribute to our understanding of the world. Um, so he, he could be... And he was a, 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 an absolutely... Um, captivating speaker. I heard him speak on a number of occasions. So some of those shorter pieces capture him uh, in an informal way that I think is really very attractive. Mm. Um, and, and I have included I have included selections from most of his things. I also, at one point in an interview, he was asked, you know, you, do you plan to write an autobiography? And he said, oh, no, I couldn't buy, write an autobiography. People would think I was too conceited. Uh, but in fact, in short bursts in various places, he did write about his life, um, wrote about his childhood, wrote about his parents and his values. Somebody, I think it might have been Peter Gibalesco or one of the other interviewers, mm. asked him about his core beliefs, including his religious beliefs. And he, So I gathered together a number of these short pieces, and I think together they make quite a compelling a kind of self-portrait in a way of, of who he thought he was, where he'd come from, what his values were and so on. Yes. Mm. Well, I did try and look for audio so I could hear his voice, but it wasn't 
immediately available. No, I'm not sure whether it is. They're, no, it's I think not. there might. Well, he, there would be audio. It's at the of National the inter- Library. Of the interviews he did at the National Library, yeah. they're, they're in audio as well as in transcript, yeah. so you could hear him there. But not online, unfortunately. No, yeah. but he, had, he spoke in a very kind of precise, clipped uh, voice. Um, I wouldn't say fastidious is, is um, perhaps exaggerating, but he was very careful about how he spoke he he for example when he was i think at the beginning of one of his books he says never use a long word where a short word would do never write a long sentence where a short one will do um always if you mean right or wrong say right or wrong don't obfuscate so he, he was very direct and open in that way and that's quite unusual Yes, yes. <laughs> Certainly, um, I appreciate that type of writing in particularly academic contexts. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, one of the quotes that is really interesting, and I guess I'd like to know how you think this reflects on his approach or character, is um, that he said, new ways of doing things are neither necessarily better nor necessarily worse than old ways. Yes. I, well, I, first of all, I agree with mm. that very much i think i mean he was against lazy thinking of any kind so uh, uh, he was suspicious of fads and trends and fashions and simply because an idea happened to be the latest thing out mm. or or it appeared to have momentum at a particular time he would be he would be more inclined then to say uh, stop reflect think about whether it's really appropriate or not so so he again and again and i suppose that that remark was made particularly against the background at a time when it seemed as though um, neoliberalism had uh, uh, had momentum, that it was the way of the future, that all of the things that he had been attached to himself in the past were relegated and regarded as unimportant. Mm. Um, he, in, that, in that sense, he, I suppose it's quite a conservative instinct in a way, isn't it? It's to say, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater take a moment to think about whether or not we're not abandoning something that we that is truly valuable mm. when we take that view well i would think that's just a rational approach exactly to yeah. anything yeah. rather yeah. than conservative yes. which is also revealing of where we're at at the moment um one of the the elements that is interesting as well is the fact that when he's talking about new ways of doing things um you quote parts from the political sciences book particularly where he's saying there are many people who come up with these schemes or classes or ways of theorizing areas of knowledge or thought and that um the last point in this which he writes which i think is quite true is that he says when your scheme has discovered no new information and has finished reclassifying the old information then let it pattern eclectic explanations wherever you can protect a market yeah. for them yes it seems to be that that's just our modern practice now almost well, probably i mean eclectic see eclectic is an interesting word that mm. he often would be approving of eclectic things he was to take the other view he was um, he was suspicious of total systems of any kind. Yes, including, by the way, I mean, one of the re- reasons he was not a Marxist um, was was that he objected to, I think, maybe not to everything about Marx by any means, but particularly to doctrinaire mm. or systematic kind of Marxism. So he was repelled by that. Um, so he was content, in a way, to patch things together to take a bit of that uh, and a bit of this um, mm. according to his own values um and he he was not troubled by the thought 
um, that he might be regarded by people who were um, more doctrinaire than himself as being unsystematic or inconsistent. Yes, it was yeah. his pragmatism. That's right. Yes. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, and and that kind of um, I think he says scientism. Yes. Of political science, which is that re- classifying and reclassifying and having and, yeah, a methodology. And, and, and it's really the idea that the social sciences can be modelled upon physics. Mm. Um, you know, remember back to the 1950s, uh, 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 physics was the was the most prestigious of the science, sciences, wasn't it? In the, yes. in the nuclear age, physics had the prestige that I probably now in the natural sciences. Biology would be have much since the discovery of DNA and all of that would have much more prestige. But at yeah. his time, physics he thought was had undue prestige and undue influence upon the way in which social scientists went about their work. Mm. Um, I just want to close out this discussion on the way we have debates because you have spoken about the fact that he believed that one had to have public intellectual debates around policy in order to to get somewhere. He was talking in a different time that had a different kind of mode of debate. What do you think he might um, consider this day and age of intellectual debate to be and how would he characterise it? And I think he'd be deeply troubled mm. by the age of, you know, Twitter and... Uh, I mean, he, his conception of... and it may, You may say this was a, uh, a very old-fashioned one, but his conception was one of a, of a lively, active public sphere in which ideas were debated openly uh, and rationally and which uh, ultimately policy was de- determined by the contest of ideas rather than by uh, shock jocks or special interests or any of the other things that now loom large. So he... he and he one of the, la- the last essay I include in the book is one called How Not to Argue. Um, and it was really uh, a, a defence of that way of thinking, which included, by the way, the feeling on his part that you should be respectful of your opponent. So yes. he, 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 even though the neoliberals, uh, many of them, he was deeply opposed to them, their values and principles, in most part he was prepared to give them um, the, uh, the respect that was due to somebody who w- was arguing uh, with, uh, you know, the good of the of the public at heart. So, uh, in that respect, I think he was a model in some ways mm. for us still. Well, this is a, a great book for anyone who is considering or thinking about these issues, and I really appreciate the fact that you've come in to talk about it today mm. and congratulate you on putting together this book, which must have been a challenge given just how. Well, it was Why a challenge and a pleasure. Is, it was, yeah. I enjoyed it. It was an opportunity for me to go back and reread mm. all of his work and to, to figure out where I stood too. Yeah. Mm. Thank you so much, Graham, for coming in. And uh, I hope people can pick up a copy and read it. Um, yes. It's out through Latrobe Publishing, which is an imprint of Black Ink. Yes. Pleasure, Amy. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.